Wonderful to be here with you this morning. It was wonderful looking out at such a variety of people. Uh, A lot of familiar faces and a lot of new faces. But we're all here with uh, the same intention, which is to touch the peace and grace inside of ourselves and take that out into the world. Which brings me to the topic title of my talk, which is Suffering and Happiness. What could be simpler? (laughs) The talk comes from verse 14 of the Doctrine chapter in the scriptures of the Founding Master. The Founding Master, Sodasan, said, Anyone encountering sensory conditions evolving suffering and happiness may understand about receiving transgressions and merits. So, through our senses, we can experience suffering and happiness, and we may recognize that those are the result of having sown seeds that create harmful or beneficial consequences. Sodasan said, having this understanding, they will seek the origin of transgressions and merits, And in seeking that origin, their meaning will become clear. So, having understood that suffering and happiness are the result of wholesome or unwholesome actions, people will seek the origin of these actions so that their meaning will become clear. I think he was saying this to people who were largely superstitious, that suffering and happiness are not matters of luck or wicked spirits or evil spells, but rather a consequence of their own behavior. So they, and now we, have an incentive to discover the origin of wholesome and unwholesome behavior. My question for all of us today is simple. What is the source of our suffering and happiness? I'd like to use my relationship with my two older sisters to guide this investigation. Growing up, I was very close to them. They were really good to me. I didn't understand the word love back then, but I'd say there was a lot of love between us. As we became older, differences and distance crept in. I'd say we all became more defended, less tolerant, and weighed down by some of life's disappointments, allowing forgotten resentments to rise to the surface. My sense of love and ease and gratitude for them became less available. I don't think I really noticed my presumption that this was their fault. I blamed them for the traits, opinions, and actions that I found hurtful and misguided. And since this was their fault, what could I do? (laughs) Clearly, it was out of my innocent hands. I was able to keep my temper mostly and be polite and generally spend less time with them than I once did. As dismal as that sounds, back then I admired my restraint and tolerance. (laughs) And since I never said anything unpleasant to them, They, of course, had no complaints about me. 
But as I got further along the spiritual path, questions and opportunities arose. I came to understand that any judgment I make against another is an outward expression of an unrecognized judgment I have been harboring against myself. One most likely incubating since childhood, unseen and unbeknownst to me, despite causing oceans of suffering. One judgment I leveled at my sister was that she was controlling. I had felt most controlled by her when I would make dinner and she would arrive with vegetables and leftovers, expecting me to work them into my menu. Really? <laughs> Thus, one day, three years ago, the thought, she is so controlling, burst forth as this jaw-dropping shock. Oh my God, I am controlling. I am the one who's been sowing seeds of animosity. Whoa, that set me back. That was a lot to take in. It had never crossed my mind. That was my controlling come to Jesus moment. The next time she arrived for dinner with her offerings, I could see caring and generosity in this. Rather than controlling her little brother, I could appreciate that she was still looking out for him. I could see a wish to be loved. Not feeling defensive, I could relax and be flexible. I thanked her and said, let me show you what I have, then let's see how to use what you've brought. So I showed her, after which she said, well, you seem to have it covered. Let's save what I brought for tomorrow. <laughs> I felt a flood of tenderness and appreciation for her and awe at the very real consequence of the release of my judgment for all these years of my sister as controlling. So to son, rather than relying as in the past on others to perform their Buddha offerings for them, they will now mostly have to perform their own. The procedures for making these Buddha offerings will have to be mastered by all adherents, which is you. Prior to Sotasan's time, there was a long tradition in Asia of imagining the Buddha as an entity inside an idol or somewhere out there separate from oneself with essentially magical powers to grant wishes, big and small. An offering to that kind of Buddha could be transactional, like giving money or food in return for blessings. You could even pay someone to perform Buddha offerings on your behalf, like paying someone to take a test for you, or paying someone to give a Dharma talk for you. <laughs> Sotasan said, no, the Buddha is not out there. The Buddha is precisely here, with us, in everyone and in everything. You, your family and friends, plants and animals, rocks and rivers. 
If you wish to improve your relationship with another, make an offering to them, not to an image. Thus, my Buddha offering was made directly to my sisters. It was to stop judging them and instead accept them as they are, to be curious about them and their interest rather than dismissive or defensive, to acknowledge them for all that was right rather than complain about what seemed wrong. Sodasan, having awakened to this principle, people will make Buddha offerings with a clear understanding of the length of time involved. The habits and beliefs that lead to transgressions run deep. So transformation for me has been slowish. So don't be discouraged if results don't appear quickly. Improvements in the outer circumstances of my life have been a gradual collateral benefit after heaps of inner work. Despite having read this chapter twice, it took eight years before I realized how to make a Buddha offering to my sisters. It took that long for me to become the context of improved relations with them. God bless our reverence for their patience, perhaps seeing in me and seeing in you the potential for transformation. So does I. People, having awakened to the principle of Ilwan Song, the Dharmakaya Buddha, will revere as the Buddha the myriad things in heaven and earth. A friend recently asked me what feelings I had toward the plants in my house. I said that I liked their beauty, but I didn't have any actual feelings toward them. She then asked if it had ever occurred to me that these plants knew almost everything about me. (laughs) That sent a shiver through my whole body. (laughs) I realized how much of my life and innermost expressions had unfolded in front of these plants. (laughs) If I'd known, I would have been more careful. I considered one plant in particular, which I have cared for and kept alive for 15 years. I've pruned, fertilized, and watered it, and when I'm gone in the summer, I run cotton ropes from a large bowl of water to keep it alive, but never with the intention of being kind to the plant. (laughs) Maybe without realizing it, I have been in a relationship with this fellow being. Rather than a generic houseplant, can I see a being who's been loyal to me, has never judged me, has graced my home with beauty, and forgiven me for the time the water ran out? (laughs) One who has possibly supported and cared for me in ways that I cannot understand. Now when I water the plant, I do so as a Buddha offering. When I walk by, I touch her leaves and I thank her. Sodasan, even after mastering the procedures and correctly making Buddha offerings, there will be differences in the results. 
For only when one continues with utmost sincerity, appropriate to the circumstances, will there be success. How do we tell if an action is sincere? Perhaps the feeling from which it is coming. Is it an offering coming from obligation? Coming from fear? Is there subtle self-interested manipulation? Or is it a selfless, spontaneous expression of goodwill? Sincerity with my sisters seemed evident when I could feel my love for them reappearing. I am recovering. Hmm. The wonderful sisters I had known as a child, who, to my amazement, had never stopped loving me. How could I have missed or discounted their love for all those years? I began to experience my sisters as sweet and lovable, sort of adorable. <laughs> and even though I'm just getting to the point where I can tell them I love them, I believe they have already felt it. What a relief it must be for them to feel that I am once again sincerely happy to see them. But I could only give to them and to you that which I've already given to myself. I can only share with you the love and acceptance that I have discovered within. In the past, when I heard the phrase, love yourself, it went as deep as a bumper sticker. <laughs> Later, when I took it more seriously, I would literally stop and try to love myself, but nothing happened. <laughs> now I can see that innocent little boy's love has always been there encrusted beneath layers of truly wacko beliefs and judgments. Gradually, I've seen those beliefs are empty, not standing on any kind of evidence, like Dorothy pulling the curtain back on the Wizard of Oz. The longer this unlearning continues, the more secure and solid I am in myself, and the more secure my sisters feel in how they will be received by me. Of course, at times I forget and I lose my way. I used to get upset with myself about this forgetting until I realized I'm not supposed to remember. Like the prodigal son, I'm meant to lose my way. There appears to be value in forgetting this deeper wisdom than finding my way back home again and again, until the day I realize, like the prodigal, I never actually left. Now I can see that all you troublesome people have a mission in my life, to bring into consciousness those long-forgotten implements of my own suffering, so they can be noticed, held gently in awareness, and released. Your family's job is not to change. Their job is to set you free.